I'm so glad to see all of you here today, but there's a couple people in some desperate need. Sister Pickard, uh, pastor's wife of a church in Toronto, neighbors to us, and have uh, many times been there for us when we needed a little extra help. They would send people over to minister or preach or sing or stuff, and so we're thankful for them. And we just want to pray for the Pickard family right now. She's been in and out of the hospital with a lot of different health issues. Uh, she's dealing with some cancer treatments and things, emergency surgery. So if you don't mind, we can lift her up in prayer this morning. And also, um, Tara Lee told me that her dad's basically uh, just kind of lying down a lot in bed um, and kind of fading away. So just if you would pray for them and pray for her and his wife, Wavy, um, and Brother Regular and just the whole family. And then also this impacts right here at home because Katie's here and her mom's in Newfoundland and Tack is working and so if you want to lift them up in prayer and let's pray for them to support this family and pray that God would strengthen them and lift them up right now. God can still do a miracle. We can still pray. As long as there's breath, there's hope, there's life. Why don't we pray and ask the Lord to touch these situations. Father, we thank you for your touch. We thank you, Lord, that you're an ever-present help. Lord, when we walk through difficult circumstances, you're present, you're there, and we trust in you, Lord Jesus. When we can't feel you, when we can't sense you, Lord, we, we grab a hold of faith this morning to believe that you're there. And Father, I pray right now for the Pickard family. Pray for Sister Pickard to heal in, in her body. God, touch as she goes through these different treatments and surgeries and things to remove this cancer from her body. Lord, I pray for Brother Regular this morning. You touch his body, strengthen him. Lord, bring him healing and peace to his soul, his mind today. In the name of Jesus, I pray for Sister Regular, Lord Jesus, for Tara Lee and for Katie and for Tack this morning. Father, would you put your hands over this family? Lord, in the midst of their pain and their questions, Lord Jesus, would you walk with them? Put your hand in their hand as they walk through this dark valley, Lord. Help us to rally around them and cover them in prayer, cover them in love, and strengthen them and help them, Lord Jesus. Would you be there for them, Father? Would you touch and encourage them this morning? In Jesus' name, we need you, Lord. We call on your name. We call on this, this God who never fails. You never fail. You never give up, Lord, and we trust you this morning. We praise you. We love you. We worship you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Hallelujah to your name, Jesus. We worship you this morning. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Our Sunday school class can be dismissed. Uh, an H3 to SK class and a grade 1 through grade 8 class. So hope they have an excellent morning, fun time. And if you'd stand with me for the reading of the word, Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, I'm reading from verse number 1. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen. Our media team is working hard every week to make sure that that is working as best as they can. So Mark 16, verse number 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun, and they said unto themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? John chapter 20, 
Skipping over to John chapter 20 and verse number 1. I'm going to be moving all around the Bible today, so if you don't just buckle your seatbelts, we're going to take a little journey here. John chapter 20, verse number 1. I'm only reading a portion of this verse. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher. And let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you are doing in our midst here today. Thank you for the hearts and the lives that you're touching. Lord, I pray right now a covering of your spirit over this service, over this message. Lord, let it touch hearts and change lives, God, so that your word will accomplish what it was set out to do. We trust in you. We rely on you, Lord Jesus, this morning, and we pray for your anointing in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Another verse of scripture back, way, way back. Rewind thousands of years from this point in history to the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is, it is the major speed bump in Bible reading plans. Um, many of us get through Genesis pretty easy because there's lots of engaging stories. There's actually some pretty crazy stories in the book of Genesis, ones that make you go, am I reading a, like, you know, R-rated movie here, <laughs> the screenplay for some kind of crazy film, uh, and, and, and then you hit the book of Leviticus, and it, you know, you get through Exodus, that's pretty exciting, although there's a few boring parts, but you get to Leviticus, and you feel like, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm reading a how to install a nuclear power plant manual, like I'm just, you know, it's like details, and, and measurements, and rules and laws and sometimes the rule skips from having uh, a fence on your house to not mixing certain kinds of cloth together uh, when you're you know so there's just like you read Leviticus and, and if you're just reading it for the reading's sake it can be like what so I give you permission if you're just trying to read through the Bible to speed read Leviticus and and slow down enough to to let the words register in your brain but don't feel bad if you don't understand what you're reading, and if, even if you want to skip Leviticus and come back to it later, that's okay. <laughs> it's really okay because sometimes it's the big speed bump. If you can get past Leviticus, then oh, you get get into Deuteronomy, and it's a little better. There's a little bit more relatable stuff there, but Leviticus is one of those speed bumps in the Bible, but there's some super cool study material. If you're studying, Leviticus is a great place to land because there's so many connections to the rest of the Bible, and it helps make sense of events that happen way, way later in Scripture. That's kind of why Leviticus is there. It's, it's for that, that purpose. Uh, so when we read Leviticus 16, verse 2, the Bible says, The Lord said to Moses, Warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. If he does, he will die. Okay, let that sink in for a second. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement is there, and I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must, and he goes on with what those instructions were. So I have a picture to help you see what is being said here. Um, when Israel left Egypt, 
they begin to go through the, the wilderness, the Sinai Desert, and they, they landed at Mount Sinai. Now, this is supposedly the place where God called Moses in the first place. Moses was tending his sheep in this vicinity, in this area. God called him and said, go to Egypt, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So if you've ever seen the, the old Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, or if you've seen the more recent, and by recent I mean the last you know, 20 years ago, the, the Prince of Egypt cartoon movie, it's pretty decent, not too bad. Um, this is that story, okay? So Moses goes to Egypt, the ten plagues hit Egypt. Pharaoh eventually says, okay, get out of here. They get out of there, they get to the Red Sea. God says, stretch your arm, your rod over the waters, and the waters part. And the children of Israel, four million people, cross the Red Sea on dry ground. And then when Pharaoh tried to come in after them to recapture them, I'm giving you the fast story, Moses takes his hand away, and the water goes, and Pharaoh's army dies, and they celebrate with tambourines and playing instruments and excitement, and, and then they start their journey. They get to the mountain, and God gives them the Ten Commandments. God gives them the law. Now you understand that these people have been slaves for 400-plus years. Now they are leaving slavery and entering into being their own people and with their own rules. So God had to help them get set up because they were not ready to be a nation on their own. They were so used to slavery. In fact, all throughout their trip down to Mount Sinai, the Bible talks about many times where they stopped and complained and said, Moses, sent, take us back to slavery because at least we had watermelons and leeks there. They forgot about the whips on their back and the lack of freedom to do what they pleased when they wanted. They forgot that their children were taken from them and thrown to the crocodiles in the Nile River, but they wanted the watermelons and the leek. You see what slavery had done to the mind. It said you cannot exist without the slave master. And this is what sin does, by the way. Sin tends to leave you feeling like you can't function without this particular habit in your life. You cannot move without this particular addiction. You cannot survive without this particular lifestyle because it has become a slave master driving you and pushing you and controlling your life. But God said, no, I'm going to set you free and I'm going to give you the ways that you can survive as a nation. And this was one of the ways. This was called the tabernacle. This was the place of worship. This is the place where people could come and encounter the presence of God. They could be forgiven of their sins. They could pray. They could talk to the Lord. And it was in the middle of the camp. All tents were organized around the tabernacle. Everyone pointed to this central point in the camp where God's presence was. And all throughout their trek in the wilderness, the Bible says there was a pillar of cloud by day that stood over top of that tabernacle, and it was a pillar of fire by night. That's, that's a miracle. That's amazing that a cloud would be there in the daytime, and at night the cloud would burst into flames, and it would be this giant bonfire sitting over top of the temple. This was a, uh, you read this and you go, well, this is crazy. This is amazing. But this was how God ensured his people would be safe in the desert. So he sets up this tabernacle. But because humans are flawed, there's so many stories to illustrate this, but one of them in particular, while God is writing down the Ten Commandments of how they're to live, 
the people are literally down at the bottom of the mountain breaking all ten of them. While God is writing them, they are breaking them. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They say, hey, let's make a golden bull and worship it because this is God. God said, don't make any graven images. And they go, okay, let's fashion a bull. You know, don't murder. And they, they, they were killing each other and behaving badly. At the, all Everything that they, they were told not to do and how to live like a society, they were already breaking at the base of the mountain. So you understand, mankind can't go very far even with the laws of God. There is something innate within us that says we want to do it our own way. We want to define for ourselves what is God and what is right and what is evil. And, and you, just, you just have to turn on your phone and look on social media or watch some Netflix to find out that that is the the general consensus of most humanity that, that we're going to do it our way and we're going to live the way we want to live and nobody can tell us any different. That's just the way it is. And so God sets up this temple and he sets up something called a priesthood, a tribe of, of Israelites that were dedicated to serving God in the temple. The reason why there's this big fence is that it's meant to keep people out. And you say, well, that's not very nice, keep people out of the presence of God. But they came as close as they could. And it wasn't so much to keep them out as to keep them safe. Because God is a just God. And if you come before a just God with sin in your life, he's going to deal with the sin before he deals with you. And if you don't have anything to atone for that sin or pay for that sin, you're going to have to pay for it yourself. And the Bible says the wages of sin, the payment for sin, is death. So something had to die for you to come in contact with God because God is just. He's fair. He cannot be just with, with somebody else and not with you. A lot of times we want God to be just with our enemies, right? We want God to take up our cause. I've been mistreated. God, take up my cause and deal justly with them because they've been unjust with me. And God says, no problem. Let's deal with you first. <laughs> they go, well, whoa, hold on, pause, time out. Them first. <laughs> That's what we want. We want them first. Uh, so God deals with us first. So you come to the outer court and a priest will meet you there. What have you come here today for? Well, I've come to ask God to forgive me of my sin. And I brought with me a lamb that's going to take my place and die in my place and cover my sin. Okay, great. So you would walk with the priest into the fence. You could only go escorted into the outer court, they said. And you would take the lamb and they would kill the lamb and the blood would be caught in, in a little basin and you, the lamb would be, then be burned on the altar and you would worship and pray with the priest. And then you would leave and the priest would go into the holy place. You were never allowed in this place. The priest was allowed in here, but only the priest. And he would go in here to light the lamps, to uh, eat of the showbread, and, and burn incense on the altar to worship God and to pray. And he would go in before you. He would go for you into the presence of God to bring your request to the Lord. He was a liaison. And there's so much there that we could talk about, but this is, I'm just trying to get it through it fast as I have somewhere else to go, okay? This back room here, it's called the holiest of holies. It was holier than here because this was the place where this little box, the Ark of the Covenant, was. All the laws of God, all the commands of God, all the promises of God, and the, uh, 
uh, artifacts that demonstrated God's miraculous power were kept in this little box. Now, this little box did not represent God, but it was like God's footstool. It was where God sat. Now, the Bible even calls the lid of the ark the mercy seat, where God would sit in mercy for his people. And he said to, the Lord said to Moses, warn your brother Aaron. And Aaron, by the way, there was only two kinds of priests. There was the high priest and the regular priest. There was only ever one high priest at a time every 50 years. And every 50 years, the high priest would usually change a generation. It would be a generation of people for a, for a high priest. And so the Lord said to Moses, he said, make sure Aaron does not go into the back room the holiest of holies, anytime he wants to. There is only one day in the year Aaron is allowed, the high priest, to go into the holiest of holies. You may, if you know any Jewish people, you may have heard that they're celebrating a festival called Yom Kippur. You may have even heard of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the new year, and then Yom Kippur comes right after Rosh Hashanah, which is the Day of Atonement. This Day of Atonement, uh, you see what I mean with Leviticus being a speed bump, okay? It's the speed bump to the rest of this message. If you hang with me here, we'll go somewhere, okay? Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It was the one day the high priest was allowed to go into the back room and talk to God face to face. And the only reason he was allowed back there was to take the blood of a bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat to show God, see, a bull has been sacrificed for the sins of the whole nation. Now, all year long, you could ask God to forgive you for your particular sin, individual sin. Let's say you stole something. Let's say you lied. Let's say you did some kind of sin that was breaking one of the commandments. You would bring an appropriate sacrifice. And your sacrifice, if... You know, like, let's say you stole. You not only had to bring the sacrifice for your sin, but then you had to bring a trespass offering. You had to present the equal value of what you stole plus 5% and present it to the Lord and then pay back. So sin was costly, right? It was meant to cost you something to motivate you not to do it, okay? So all year long, you could bring your sacrifice in every day, every day, every day, every day. But the, the day of atonement was the day when all of those sins that were piled up on a record book were taken care of in one sacrifice. And the priest would bring the one sacrifice into the holiest of holies and sprinkle the blood on the altar. The high priest had a special garment. The special garment had bells and pomegranates at the base. There was a reason for that because it was meant to be he was the only one allowed in the temple during Yom Kippur, during the the Day of Atonement, the only one allowed in there. And so by chance, if he messed up the order of the ceremony, dead. If God did not accept the sacrifice, the high priest would die, dead. If he went into the holiest of holies without blood, dead. So he knew exactly what to do, and they, tradition even says they tied a rope around his foot because if God killed him in the temple... Who's going to go get him? <laughs> Pull him out. And how would they know he was dead? They would stop hearing the bells jingle. As long as he was moving, you could hear the jingle, 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 jingle. 
And now, oh, the bells are moving. Okay, he's still alive. Okay, God didn't kill him. God's accepting our offering. God's accepting our sacrifice. And then he would come out. No interruptions while he was making the sacrifice. No interruptions while he's sprinkling the blood. No stopping to do any other thing because he was on a one very important mission the whole list of sins for the entire 4 million plus people of the nation of Israel are being atoned for on this day. So you can imagine the celebration when the priests would come out of the temple alive and everyone goes, sins are forgiven. They're paid for for the whole year. We God has accepted our sacrifice. God's accepted our year, our, our daily sacrifices of, of repentance. And today, the sins of the nation have been appeased for another year. Now, the Bible tells us later on in the book of Hebrews, it's the Leviticus of the New Testament. And the book of Hebrews tells us that this was a broken system. It was imperfect, broken, and not efficient. Because how could the blood of an animal really pay for my sin? How is that just? How is that? It does not fully pay for. It only appeased for a time. Somebody had to pay for the sins of humanity. Somebody, a human, had to take the place of every human being on the planet but this somebody could not have sins of his own. Otherwise, he would have no, no, no capital to pay for the sins of others if he had to pay for his own sins. So someone who was perfect, someone who was spotless, someone who was clean and pure and did the perfect will of God every day of his life had to atone for the sins of humanity because death was required for sin. God could not change the judgment, otherwise he would be unjust. God could not excuse the, the crime of a murderer and say, oh, it doesn't really matter because the, then he's unjustifying and unsanctifying the life of that person that was taken. He could not say, oh, the, 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 the abuser or the, the child molester or the, the thief it's no big deal. We'll just wipe, we'll just pretend like that doesn't happen or we'll change the penalty so he doesn't actually die. That's not mercy. That's injustice. Because who are the victims supposed to appeal to? If there's no just for the victims, no justice for the victims, then how can he be a just and good God? He could not be a good God if he ignored the price tag of sin, because sin always has a price tag. And so. Jesus dies on the cross. And the crucifixion was a dark and terrible way to die. The crucifixion was dark with Jesus' pain and anguish. It was dark with the denial of his friend Peter. It was dark with the betrayal of Judas, one of his closest disciples. 
It was dark with the desertion of the rest of the disciples when they found that Jesus was being taken captive. It was dark with the lies of the accusations from the priests and those who were paid to to uh, lie in testimony against Jesus in order to get him killed. It was dark with Pilate's cowardice when he when he uh, gave in to the pressure of the people that wanted Jesus crucified instead of releasing him. They released a criminal by the name of Barabbas. It was dark with Christ's suffering when he was on the cross. It was dark with the sharp nails in his hands and feet. And it was dark with the crown of thorns that was beaten into his skull. It was dark with the whip, the cat of nine tails that took a chunk of flesh off of his back every time the whip landed there. Thirty-two times he was whipped. It was dark with Satan's joy and glee as he watched his enemy who had tormented him before his time to be killed and crucified on the cross. Think of a family member, someone close to Jesus. Put yourselves in their shoes. We wouldn't even be able to watch the crucifixion without turning our head to the side, closing our eyes at the most gruesome details. Many depictions of Jesus on the cross include some kind of a covering of his of his loins, but in order, in true crucifixion fashion, the victim was laid open and exposed to everybody. There was nothing to cover their nakedness or their shame. It was the most brutal and shameful way to be killed. And Jesus did it, yet he was not guilty. Scientists discovered that Jesus, as they they read through the the accounts of Christ's medical science discovered that Jesus died of a broken heart. The strain and the pressure of the sins of the world actually ruptured the pericardium in his heart, and Jesus died. That's when, the, when they pierced him in the side. The Bible says blood and water mingled together, flowed out. Medical science shows that that, that, that very thing displays the fact that Jesus' heart actually broke inside of his ca- chest cavity before He was pronounced dead. He died of a broken heart. He was broken hearted for my sin. He was broken hearted for every time someone's mistreated you, every time someone's lied against you, any time someone has hurt you, he's broken hearted for you. But he's also broken hearted for every time you rejected him and every time you walked away and every time you looked in in the wrong direction, it broke his heart for you. Because of the pain it would bring, the consequences it would bring into your life. His heart was broken over the betrayal. His heart was broken over the sin. And he went to the cross and died for our sins there. Think of his family. There were a few people, the Bible says, that gathered around the foot of the cross. One of them was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Inexplicable grief. There's no way any of us could ever try to understand the kind of grief that gripped the heart of that mother that day. And close beside her was another woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. We first encounter Mary Magdalene as a follower of Jesus. The Bible does not speak of her too, too much, but she is there along with all the other disciples as they traveled. It's clear that Mary was a tag-along disciple that wasn't part of the 12, but she was part of the group. She was there 
And she often met the needs of the group as they traveled. And that's indicated in Scripture that she traveled alongside them. That there were actually women in the traveling group of disciples. And Mary Magdalene was one of them. It's believed that, that Jesus was ministered to two times by two separate women in a very special way. The Bible records in Luke 7 of, a, an, of an, an, uh, an instance where an immoral woman from the city heard that he was eating there. And so she brought a beautiful box of alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume and she knelt beside him at his feet, weeping, and her tears falling on his feet and wiping them with her hair. And she kissed his feet and put the perfume on them. And when the Pharisees had invited him, saw this, they said to himself, If this man was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman was touching him. She is a sinner. And her name is not clearly stated here, but many scholars believe that this was Mary Magdalene. In the very next chapter, we learn that Mary, her backstory was one of, of, of sadness and sin. That before she came to Jesus, the Bible says she was possessed with seven demonic spirits. Seven demonic spirits that, that forced her into unspeakable pain and suffering. And, and, and all you have to do is look at the example of Everybody else in the Bible who's possessed with a demonic spirit, they go through things like cutting themselves. They, they live in, in uh, dirty places. They often give themselves over to base activities, maybe prostitution or maybe some other kind of, of, of wicked enterprise, but they're, they're not people you want to hang around. They're dangerous. They're aggressive. And oftentimes they lash out in an an attacking kind of way. And Mary was possessed with seven of these demons, but when she met Jesus, those demons were no match for the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, he expelled the demons out of her life, and her life was changed and renewed to the point where, where she came to him to worship him in this way, bowing down at his feet, pouring expensive oil and ointment on them to worship him. For what she what he had done for her. Now Mary is here at the cross watching her Lord suffer and die. She was there for the Sermon on the Mount. She was there for every healing. She was there, no doubt, to hear the stories of walking on water. She was there to see many miracles and many signs and many wonders. And now she's staring at this man who did so many amazing things. As he dies a slow death on the cross. She was there when Joseph of Arimathea said, take him down and I'll put him in my own personal tomb. She was there when they wrapped his body in the burial clothes. And she was there when they laid him in the tomb. And she was there when the soldiers rolled the stone over the body and over the tomb and set up a guard and a night watch to make sure nobody would come by and steal the body in the night. And she would go home and no doubt weep and cry herself to sleep. And the next day she'd get up and go back to the tomb. And she'd continually pay her respects and do her vigiling with the other women and people who were devoted to Jesus. And so it was no surprise on the third day, on the Sunday morning, she was on her way to the tomb. But you can imagine Mary's feet dragged a little heavier on this third day. It's been three days 
three days, and grief was palpable. Palpable. It was you could taste it in the air. It was heavy on her heart. Every hope she had of Jesus being the Messiah had died on that cross. Every hope of him rising again on the first day, on the second day, had now been washed away. Now we're three days in. There's no way he could have come back. But she came back to the to the tomb to do one more application of ointment. She brought with her this ointment again. Mary, Salome, and Mary, uh, the mother of James, came with them, and they were going to the tomb. It was late. Jesus had walked on water, but those feet were pierced and lying still in this tomb. And we could all imagine the hot knife of disappointment and physical mental ruin stab our dreams into oblivion. We have all operated under a sense of duty that propelled us to keep going just simply from the fact that if we stop, we might fall apart completely. Hope doesn't motivate our next step, just duty and obligation. And, and these women, no doubt, were not walking with steps, bouncing with hope and anticipation, but out of a sense of love and duty to the one that they had called Lord and Master all these years. There are times when we are called to love expecting nothing in return. There's times we're called to give without ever being thanked and called to forgive those who drive the nails and pierce our side. We're called not only to know him in the power of his resurrection, but in the fellowship of his sufferings. There's times when we read the scriptures that talk about being wounded and bruised, chastised, rejected, forsaken, scorned, and led as a lamb to the slaughter and think the Bible's talking about our lives and then we turn the scripture or we read the next verse and discover this is actually talking about Jesus. Sometimes we may be able to identify with the pain and the suffering of these people that experienced this, this crucifixion story for the first time. I wonder if on the way to the tomb, Mary stopped at a time at two and said, what's the use? What's the point of going on? Who's going to move the stone for us? I don't know if, will the soldiers even let us get in? I don't know. Maybe they talked amongst themselves as they brought, did you bring the spices? Yes. Did you bring the herbs? Yes, I have the oil here. How are we going to get in? I don't know. The disciples didn't want to come with us to help us move the stone. What a bunch of jerks. They're going to make us women do all the work. Yeah, typical, right? You can imagine the chatter as they go on. And who, how are we, like, how are we, I don't know, girls. We just, I just feel we need to go today. Oh, but I'm so tired. I haven't slept. Me neither. I haven't slept either. And I, I keep thinking about the cross. And you, you know what I mean by trauma. This is trauma beyond trauma. To watch someone you love be tortured for no good reason is extremely traumatic extremely traumatic the damage it did to their brain watching this horrible event was enough to literally drive someone into insanity but somehow they put one foot in front of the other and every step they took they got a little closer to the tomb the bible says when Sabbath was passed. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said to themselves, who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? 
They didn't have to really do anything about that because the Bible says when they got there, the first day of the week, and they got there to the sepulcher, the Bible says while they were arriving, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. See, when you're faithful to God and you walk the steps of faithfulness and love and service and duty, maybe not out of a sense of hope, but simply out of love and faithfulness. By the way, the Bible says that faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. When you continue even though it's painful, when you continue even though it's difficult, when you continue even though you have no hope of something changing, but you faithfully do what's right and what you know is true in your heart, there is a reward at the end of that. Something may have died in your life. A dream may have died. A hope may have perished and been laid in a tomb. But here was Mary when she got to the door of the tomb. The Bible says an angel rolled away the obstacle and sat down on it. See, I believe that if we don't, we don't give up in our service to the Lord and we continue following Him, there is going to be hardship. There are going to be crosses to bear. There are going to be difficult things and grief that seems so heavy, it's going to crush you. But I promise that if you keep on hoping, you keep on trusting, you keep on believing in God, there's going to come a time when God will roll away the stone of the obstacles that are in the way, and he'll use those stones as seats for angels. Because the angel came and sat on the stone as the stone was rolled away. God is faithful to every one of his promises. If this scripture says anything to me, it says God keeps every one of his promises. All throughout his ministry, Jesus kept telling his disciples, I'm going to die, but three days later, I'm coming back to life. Three days later, you can destroy this temple, but in three days, I'll rebuild it. God kept his promises to the hour, to the minute, to the letter. God always keeps his promises. And when God needs to move a stone. If you can't move it, if God wants it moved, he'll send an angel and an earthquake to get it out of the way so you can get to where God wants you to be. For us, there may be stones of guilt and shame and condemnation. The tomb of our hope and our life buried beneath the weight of sin and the penalty of death resting over us. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that there is no condemnation to those who belong to Christ Jesus. Because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So if you, you reject your sinful nature and you turn to Jesus, He'll bring you back to life. He'll restore your life. He'll bring you a new hope and a, a new way of living and and that, that sinful weight that held you back and that blocked your pathway will be removed by the power of God. God is able to bring healing and no doubt the questions. I don't know if Mary experienced joy right away. I don't think she had a sense of elation or excitement right away because the Bible seems to indicate that when she got there, she had a lot of questions. Where have you taken the body? Like the the, 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 tomb, the tomb was open. The soldiers were gone and there's an angel sitting there and she's asking, where's the body? It didn't register. Do you see what I mean by the trauma? 
what it did to her brain. She could not even put two and two together. Oh, there's an angel here. Well, that must mean something miraculous has happened, right? You don't see an angel every day, right? This stone has moved. This must mean something supernatural has happened. No, she's saying, no, who stole the body? He's still dead. How do I know he's dead? I watched him die. See, the power of our reality can override what God does in our life sometimes. God does a miracle, and we're still looking for a a human explanation. God does something miraculous, but we're still trying to find the proof. Where's the body? Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? We, We sometimes struggle with faith to believe God for a miracle to the point when an angel is standing in front of you sitting on the tombstone that blocked your entrance into the, into the place where his body was and his body's no longer there. The grave clothes are sitting there. And by the way, the Bible says he had folded up his grave clothes and put it at the head of the, tab- at the, head of the stone. Jesus paused long enough to fold up his bloody grave clothes and, and lay them nicely. There's no excuse for you not making your bed. Jesus folded up his grave clothes to show his disciples, I'm really alive. And Mary comes in and says, who stole the body? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the better high priest than the one before. Jesus is the better high priest. Remember what we were talking about at the beginning? How the high priest would go into the holiest of holies And he would offer up the blood on the holiest of holies. And only the high priest was allowed in there. Listen to this verse in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and for all, once and forever, to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless and unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once and for all when he offers himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was the temple of God, he was the high priest of God, and he was the perfect sacrifice all in one. When he went into the tomb, his body was laid there. And when he rose on the third day, he rose as the priest with the blood in his hands to present the sacrifice at the heavenly ark. The Bible tells us that this ark of the this tabernacle plan was a picture copy of what heaven looks like. In heaven, there is a temple where there is all these instruments. For whatever reason, that's the way it is. But the Bible says this is a picture of what heaven was look like. The heavens came to earth in the tabernacle, in the temple where God's presence was. And so there was a 
heavenly holiest of holies that by the way nobody could ever get into except the high priest and so when Jesus rose on the third day Jesus rose as the high priest who was now clothed in white garments just like the high priest and ready to go into the holiest of holies and present the blood of the sacrifice because he was the sacrificing priest on the cross and he was also the lamb that was sacrificed on the cross so now when he rises from the dead he's now risen as the high priest ready to present the sacrifice of the blood of the offering that was made three days before. And so Jesus is standing in the tomb, alive, ready to rise. And here comes Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome. Listen to what happens. John chapter 20, verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in, and she saw two robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angel asked her. You ever have an angel ask you why you're crying? Not me. Because they've taken away my Lord, she says. She answers an angel in the tomb and tells him, Someone's taken Jesus away. It never clicked. It never registered. Do you see what, the, what the, crucif- the trauma of the crucifixion did? It broke her mind. She could not think straight. I don't know where they put him, she said. She turned to leave and she saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. The trauma of the cross was so horrific that it completely obstructed her ability to recognize him with her eyes. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? Even his voice didn't sound the same. She thought it was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. And she turned to him and cried, Rabboni which is Hebrew for teacher. Then Jesus says these words, Don't cling to me. You can't touch me yet, Mary, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go and tell my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Are you getting the Leviticus connection here? Remember? When the priest was offering this blood for the sin of of the nation, he had to wear bells on his robe so everyone knew he wasn't dead because he couldn't come out until he was finished. He couldn't come out and talk to anybody until the blood had been applied to the mercy seat. When the blood of the bull had been caught in the basin, he had to go directly in to the temple and present it before the Lord in the ceremonial fashion with the incense, with the singing, with the prayers, and everything had to be just so in order and in place. You want to know why Jesus is a better high priest than the priests of the Old Testament? Because Jesus died, had the blood to present, and stopped long enough to talk to Mary Magdalene, the woman who was a prostitute, the woman who was possessed with seven demons, whose life was a shambles and who was destroyed until Jesus came. But because she 
got a hold of something called faithfulness. And she got a hold of something called consistency. She was present at the moment when Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus paused his high priestly duties. You understand the fate of every human being sinful destiny rested in the hands of Jesus at this moment. But he was such a good high priest. He could stop the ceremonial duties and say, hold on, there's somebody I need to talk to. There's somebody I need. And, and she didn't recognize him when he said, why are you crying? She didn't recognize him when he said, who are you looking for? But she recognized the way he called her by name. When he called her by name, all of the pieces fit together. Her brain was healed in that instant. All the trauma was restored in that moment. Uh, all the brokenness the cross had brought to her mind and her eyes uh, had been healed in that instant as Jesus stopped long enough to call her by name. Uh, I'd submit to you this morning that Jesus, if he's good enough to stop to talk to Mary, she couldn't touch him, but he could see her long enough to let her know, I'm actually alive, Mary. You didn't pick up on the angel clue. You didn't pick up on the stone being rolled away clue. You didn't pick up on the, the cloth being folded at the head of the bed clue, Mary, but I'll call you by name to make sure you know I am alive. I have defeated death, hell, and the grave. He loves her enough to stop and talk to her. I submit to you that there is nothing you have done that would stop Jesus from calling you by name. There is nothing you have said in your life. There's no choice you've made. There's no sin you've committed. There's no place you've been that would make Jesus ashamed to call you by name. There is no, there is no sin or, or, or depravity or kind of lifestyle that you have ever done or called or done or said that would stop Jesus from loving you or calling you or appealing to you, would you follow me? Would you give your life to me? I'll heal you. I'll heal the brokenness. I'll restore the wounds. I'll, I'll, I'll pour oil and wine into the, the, the cracks and the crevices of your broken life. I'll, I'll be there for you. There's no one like our God this morning. I wonder if we could take a few minutes to respond to Jesus and his call. I think he's calling us to be closer to him. He's calling us by name. If you'll tune your ear, you can hear him speak your name and call you out and, and beckon you to come closer to him. Would, we, would you stand with me this morning and find a place of prayer and respond to the voice of Jesus as he calls you by name this morning? Hallelujah, Jesus. I love you, Lord. You stopped long enough to come and talk to me. You stopped long enough to reach out and love me, Jesus. I, I love you. I worship you. I love you, 